Amen, and good morning to you. Happy Sunday, Mark chapter 15. This morning, Mark chapter 15, just seven verses today, though that's not indicative of how long I'll preach. That's just how many verses we're going through, beginning in verse 33 today. Verse 33. I'll read it to you as you're turning there. Now when the sixth hour had come... There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So the sixth hour would be, according to the way that they did time, 12 o'clock. And that would take us till 3 o'clock in the afternoon that darkness would cover the land. Physically, that was the case. Of course, as we've been seeing, and especially last week, the whole scene is darkness, isn't it? I mean, when we looked at last week's text, the brutality of what was involved in Jesus going and making his way to the cross, the mocking, the shame, the scourging, the beating, all of those things, very dark, the whole thing, just hard to read, hard to listen to. I could see it on your faces last week. And... So it's appropriate here, whether this is a judgment of God upon humanity or even the judgment, as we'll see here in a little while, that falls upon Christ for the sins of humanity. Darkness covers the land as this whole thing unfolds and as he dies upon that cross. The question, though, that has to be asked is, why? Because if you came to me, I mean, the way my mind works, and you say, listen, Jesus came into this world and he died on the cross a couple thousand years ago and you need to put your faith in him and become a follower of his and you don't tell me why he came into the world and why he died on the cross then I'm going to wonder why I should put my faith in Jesus as opposed to any other world religious leader out there that's come and gone and the fact is Jesus is different he's definitely a standalone character in the history of this world not just the miracles that he did not just the marvels of his teaching a sinless life also but even in all of those things that Jesus did all of the things that he did were meant to drive home a particular point every other religious leader was merely born Jesus came into the world he was born but he came eternally existent son who came into the world and he came into the world for a specific reason. In fact, even before he was born, remember in Matthew chapter 1, the angel appeared to Joseph when Mary was pregnant, even though she was a virgin. And the angel said, she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, when a corporation sort of dwindles down their business plan, They try to get the very essence of it in a mission statement, maybe one or two sentences that capture their ongoing focus. In case they'd ever be tempted, in a sense, to sort of drift away from that focus, they can always return to their mission statement. Well, Matthew chapter 1 gave us heaven's mission statement in the eternally existent, sinless, um, righteous Son of God coming to earth, And it's indicative even in his name, Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation. That at the name of Jesus, every time we would say Jesus, we would be reminded that 
What is being communicated every single time is that Jesus came into the world to provide a way, to make a way of salvation for sinners, to reconcile a sinful world back to God. Now, there need not be any reason for anyone to be offended when I call you, that's right, you, a sinner. You don't need to be offended by that because I call everybody a sinner, not me actually, but the Bible calls everyone a sinner. And sin just means to miss the mark of perfection. You're something short of perfection. That's everyone in here. I don't have to know anything about you to know that. So you've fallen short of God's glory, so you are by definition a sinner. And unless we realize that, unless people realize that, what reason would they have for a savior? See, they have to know that they need a Savior. I'm sure no one would mind having a Savior, but to know that you need a Savior because you're a sinner, very important part of that. Not just because, oh, maybe once or twice or here and there in the course of my lifetime I made a mistake or two or something like that, but that we are sinners at the core. I can't remember the last time I laid my head on a pillow at the end of the night and said, God, I had a great day today. I acted like the Lord Jesus in every single thing that I did. Check back with you tomorrow. Um, I don't know if that ever happened to you before, but uh, it seems like every single day I'm confessing to the Lord my sins and um, having to talk to him about the condition of my heart, and he's clearing up the clutter. Now, why do we need then to be saved from our sins? For those of you, most of you know the gospel, but it's quite simple. The problem is, is that sin separates us from God. God is holy and righteous. He can't have sin in his presence in heaven. It's sinless there. He can't allow sin in heaven. And so as a result, we being sinners, the whole idea is we've separated ourselves from a holy God and Jesus has to go on the cross and pay the price for our sins so that we can be reconciled to a holy God. And you wonder why in the world is this guy preaching the obvious this morning? Well, it's a gift I have. Stick around for a little while and you'll see that it just comes naturally. It's what we do here. No, seriously, that's the gospel message, and you need to know it up front before we get into the text this morning, because, by the way, you just can't improve upon the gospel in no way. It's the best story that there is. It never gets old. It's good again this morning. It's captured here so well with a few statements that are made by Jesus upon the cross that are so important to understanding the fundamentals of our faith. But before we jump in, as means of review, I want to read a few verses from Psalm 22, which isn't that interesting, Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus was born and hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. I'm going to read some of it as a means of review for what happened last week. So just think about that for a second. Think about how cool that is. I'm going to use prophecy written a thousand years before Jesus was born to review the text from last week that had Jesus in it. Pretty neat, huh? So this is what it says. And you don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. It says, all those who see me ridicule me. This is a messianic psalm. Nobody denied that when it was written or the thousand years up until the time in which Jesus fulfilled it. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head. Remember it said in the text last time, Specifically, they wagged their heads at him to mock him when he was on that cross. It says, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. And then it says, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. As he was hanging upon that cross, the weight being held up there by those nails, his shoulders probably would have become dislocated at some point, 
hanging from that weight. So all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within me. And with the lack of oxygen and the blood loss and the dehydration, a lot of the victims of crucifixion would have died of cardiac arrest. My heart has melted within me. Jesus literally died of probably a broken heart. My strength is dried up like a pot sherd and my tongue clings to my jaws, dehydrated as can be. And we'll see that again in our text here this morning. They pierced my hands and my feet. Literally, right? With nails in between the palms of his hand and one spike in between the ankles at the base of the cross. They pierced him. Before crucifixion was ever practiced, here's King David talking about the Messiah being pierced. And we saw that last time as well. Verse 17 in that passage says, I can count all my bones, which is another amazing prophecy because Jesus never got his bones broken upon that cross. Now that's important for two reasons. Well, three reasons. I might not remember all three, but the first reason, <laughs> the first reason why that's important is because they didn't stone him, which is the typical way that they would have um, executed someone in that day would be to stone someone. But they didn't want to stone Jesus because they didn't want to be blamed for it. He was so immensely popular at the time that they wanted somehow to pass this off as some Roman thing, as something that Pilate did. If they had stoned him, surely he would have had some broken, uh, broken bones in his body without any shadow of a doubt. It's also important because of the fact that um, as a victim was on the cross, as they were being crucified, if they were there for too long a time, eventually they would end the suffering and they would take a big hammer and they would break their ankles so that they couldn't push up from the base of the cross in order to extend their lungs to take another breath and then they would die of suffocation. And the third reason, I remember them all, the third reason why it's important is because simply God said that his bones would not be broken in more than one place. Two places in the Old Testament, God said his bones would not be broken. And then finally, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And we saw that in Mark chapter 15 last week as they were rolling dice at the base of the cross for the very clothes that Jesus had. They were rolling dice as he made the sacrifice for all of humanity. Now, Jesus is on this cross, and I'll explain to you why I read Psalm 22 in a minute. It's very important, so don't forget about that. But as Jesus hangs on the cross from about 9 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he makes seven cries from the cross. Maybe you remember those seven. The first one was he said, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. One of them, the next one, was in response to a thief who said, remember me in your kingdom. And he said, surely today you will be with me in paradise. The third thing he said was, he said, mother, behold your son, speaking to Mary. Then he said to John, John, behold your mother, making sure that even after he was gone, that Mary would be kept after, that she would be looked after by the apostle John. And then this morning in our text, we're going to see a couple more of them. Uh, that are paramount in Jesus' final moments, in his very last breaths before he would die. Here, Jesus, he cries out a few times with a loud voice. The first one, a particular cry, more than just a complaint or some sort of confusion, um, some sort of expression of despondency, though it's quite likely that it is, some or all of those things without any shadow of a doubt it is also in addition a fulfillment of one of the most amazing prophecies that you'll ever see in all of the bible let me explain 
In those days, remember, there were no chapters and there were no verses in the Bible. It was just one continual writing. So when a rabbi wanted to instruct the students or the synagogue, they would begin with the initial part or a small or very recognizable phrase or sentence from a passage of scripture that everybody would be able to identify since it wasn't divided up into sections. Today I say, hey, turn to John chapter 3 and everyone would be able to just go to their Bible and find that spot. But in those days I would have had to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And then you'd be able to go to John and scroll through and find out where it was that I would be teaching from that morning. So that's why there are divisions in the Bible, but they didn't have them back in that day. And that's why I believe Jesus, being a rabbi himself, while on the cross, tipped them off if they were there and they had ears to hear what was happening that morning as to what he was indicating to them while he was hanging on the cross. He was pointing them back to Psalm 22, the messianic prophecy that would describe a suffering servant being crucified before there ever was crucifixion, because no doubt that in that day, if any rabbi had read from that section what is now Psalm 22, they would have began with verse 1, which is exactly what Jesus says in verse 34. Check it out. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama subachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22.1. In other words, there may have been some people that were there that day that when Jesus said that, put it together, and it fit in for them, and they went, oh, no, what have we done? He's him. They would have seen the description in Psalm 22 of what the suffering servant Messiah would go through and that he would cry out, Lama Subachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that would have tipped them off that we're in Psalm 22, folks. And some may have gone back later, looked it up in their Bibles and put one and one together. Maybe Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea or other secret disciples that would later come out of the closet for Jesus Christ. Now, there is another sense to this that's very important. Not just that fulfillment, beautiful, extraordinary fulfillment of prophecy, but also Jesus here forsaken on the cross. What in the world does that even mean? How can perfect in unity and harmony, Trinity of God, ever there be a forsaken son? And I readily admit that I'm not so sure I understand all that there is to this. One of the things when we come to something that is so wonderful, at least as it relates to our salvation, remember it is good what happened on the cross, and it pleased the Father what happened. But when it makes no sense because it seems so horrific for our Savior to be forsaken, should just cause within us an awe and a worship response to what he was willing to endure for us, even if we can't understand it. Anytime you have the finite in a relationship with the infinite, you're going to have a little bit of mystery and you're going to have to get used to it because we can only track with God so far as long as he'll allow us to understand what it is that he's talking about. I only know 
that something occurred that Jesus was or felt something that he had never felt in eternity past and I believe something that he never will feel again going forward in eternity something that occurred one time in an event associated with the cross and although maybe there's a great mystery behind exactly how Jesus felt at that time and maybe we will never know what I do not believe is mysterious about this is why he was forsaken I believe we're given that answer in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 when the Apostle Paul declares he that is the father made him that is the son who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him whatever that meant exactly probably is impossible for mere human beings like you and I to imagine what it would be like to bear the sins of the world. Isaiah put it this way, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here is sinless, perfect, holy, righteous God the Son, and at this point, in time he becomes literally becomes sin in order to provide for us a way in order to provide for us a perfectly completed salvation to reconcile relationship between humanity and God you know when I first came to Christ and even to this day I can hardly bear the thought of my own sin the shame of my past, the people I hurt, the things that I did, the things that I said, the things that I thought and felt. Think about your worst sin this morning. Probably doesn't take very long to come to your mind the worst thing that you ever did. Sometimes you live with the consequence of that sin. Now think about taking that worst sin and placing it upon your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And not just your sin, but my sin. And not just your sin and my sin, but all of our sins. And not just all of our sins, but all of the sins of all of the people in the history of the world. And put that on Jesus. How would that feel? I don't know. But it would have to be very heavy to consider. You think about the atrocities that have been done. You think about the wars, the crimes, rape, murder, um, children being abused in this world, the things that have happened, theft, all these things that have happened in this world. I'm not saying that I know how Jesus felt. I'm just saying, can you imagine all of those sins being placed upon Jesus? How do I feel about that one great sin or the two or the three or the ten great sins of my life, how they still weigh on me? Imagine placing all of the world's sins upon Jesus Christ on that cross private and public big and small all kinds of things all laid upon him and notice there as he cried out in a loud voice you can tell somehow again mysterious I can't for sure say what it is but there's a sense there that he's alone in this process that only he could really endure this that somehow there's a, a disturbing disruption between him and the father some kind of a breaking of fellowship in a sense. We can't really say it's a complete separation because the Bible tells us that God was in Jesus 
reconciling the world to himself upon that cross. But at the same time, God cannot have sin in his presence also. So it's a great mystery that somehow some have proposed maybe the father turned his back on the son. Maybe for a moment in time, he knew for the first time in all of eternity what it was like to have fellowship interrupted in some way, shape, or form. And that's why he said, my God, my God, on the cross. Always before, it had always been Father. Because it was always in such intimacy, perfect harmony, and uninterrupted fellowship. Now, this makes the Garden of Gethsemane make more sense too, right? If you go back to that prayer in the garden, the prayer where it was in agony he was in the garden, exceedingly sorrowful unto death. It says his sweat was like great drops of blood. Now, we said at the time, of course, it was his foreknowledge of the physical beating, of the betrayal of Judas, of the denial of the disciples that he knew he was going to endure, the mocking of a shameless world all the way up into and upon that cross, none of that he was looking for, forward to at all, despising the shame, the Bible says. And yet at the same time, I wonder if all those things are a sidebar in comparison to what he worried the most about, what threatened him the most about the cross, which was this point in time when he became forsaken of the Father. When God placed all of the judgment for all of our sins upon him, the idea of it in the garden terrorized him. It's known as the crucifixion within the crucifixion. And it's the only thing that ever frightened the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about all the things in our life that worries us or scares us or concerns us or makes us nervous. The only thing that bothered Jesus was the idea of some kind of interruption between him and the Father. That ought to be a word for you and I this morning in our own individual walks with God. The thing we ought to fear the most is anything that we would do that would interrupt our fellowship with the Father. Any kind of sin, any kind of decision, any kind of direction that we would go down where we wouldn't have the close-knit harmony and unity and intimacy with God that we have at the highest peak of our lives. That should be what fears us the most. That's the only thing that terrorized Jesus Christ. And here's the good news, because he did cry out in agony, because he did experience that forsakenness, no one here ever has to. We never have to experience that because he did it for us. Not on purpose, you don't. Only if you choose to, you never have to experience that because he went before us. The price has been paid. The work has been done. And if you believe it this morning, you're free. Then, verse 35, some of those who stood by when they heard that, when they heard Eli, Eli, Lama Subakbani, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. I don't really think that they thought he was calling for Elijah, that's my personal opinion. Because he said it with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lama Subakdani, why have you forsaken me? So I think that they're still mocking him at this point. There was a tradition um, at the time, sort of a superstition, that the Jewish people believed. It's not in the Bible. But they just kind of believed that if a person that was righteous was in distress, if they cried out for Elijah, Elijah would come to the rescue. I think today some people believe that to be true about St. Jude or something like that. Maybe you grew up crying out to St. Jude. I don't know. It, that's not true either, by the way. If you cry out to St. Jude, he's not going to do anything for you. 
But that was the tradition in that day, and I think they're mocking him. Ah, let's give him a little bit of wine. Let's keep him alive a little bit longer. If he's really who he says he is, maybe Elijah will come and rescue him. There's another reason, though, why they gave him wine. And the other reason why they gave him wine is because he said, he made his other cry, made the fifth cry upon the cross at this point. It's not recorded here for us, but we know in John's gospel he said, I thirst. Which again corresponds to Psalm 22, which we read earlier. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. Imagine a thirst so demanding that it would take precedence over every other part of your body that would be hurting from the crucifixion and the scourging and the beating that had taken place that morning. That he had made zero complaints, Jesus did, about his physical condition in any way, shape, or form. But as he's on that cross, the one thing he does say as it relates to his physical condition is, I thirst. Because he had sweat so much, he had lost so much blood, it was up until at least noon for sure, probably anyway, even with the darkness, a very hot day, no doubt that time of the year, had sweat, he had probably stayed up the night before, didn't get much sleep, not much water in his system, so dehydrated, he was unable, it would seem from the text, to dislodge his tongue from his jaw. Now try crying out, Eli, Eli, lama subachthani, with your tongue clinging to the jaw. You can't do it. And that's literally what's happening to Jesus at this point in time. And so they offer him some sour wine, which this sour wine is probably just vinegar. It was the poor man's drink of the day. This is not to be confused with the wine that was mixed with myrrh that they offered him last time that he turned down. That was offered to people to deaden the pain so that they could hang a little longer. Jesus, he rejected that drink because he wanted to feel the fullness of that pain. He didn't want any numbing sensation upon the cross. Here he takes this vinegar for a very good reason. Number one, because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 69, in speaking of the suffering servant, said they gave me vinegar to drink. But also, and more importantly, so that as only he knew, moments away from his death, why now file a complaint about your thirst? Because he was not complaining at all. He knew that as he was about to die, he needed to moisten his mouth just enough to loosen his tongue just enough that he would be able to make one final cry from that cross so important that we can't even understand the Christian faith fully without it. That's how important it is. It says verse 37, and Jesus cried with a loud voice and breathed his last. And you know what he cried from the other gospels, right? It is finished. If you don't know any Greek, you know one Greek word, tetelestai, right? And maybe agape, love. And the rest of the Greek we don't know. But we know tetelestai, which means it is finished, to bring to a close, to accomplish, to complete perfectly. And so when he says, it is finished, what is finished? What is the it there that he finished perfectly and completely? And the answer is that what Jesus finished was a perfectly completed salvation by dying upon the cross for our sins. Tetelestai, a word everybody there at the base of the cross 
would have known. Because even if you just went to the local store and you bought something, they would give you a receipt, and the receipt would be stamped to telestai, which meant paid in full. If you had a long-term debt, same thing, finally paid off someone you owed money to for years. Some of you maybe have had the privilege of buying a home. What did that feel like the day that you made your last mortgage payment? I don't know because I have never been able to do that. But for those of you that have, what a great feeling that must have been. Or for some of us, maybe still to this day, mired in debt. The, just the opposite, right? How heavy that can be on us as human beings, even as Christians sometimes. What a frustration, what a frustration you know, to have that kind of thing. It weighs on us. And then when you finally pay that visa bill off or that college loan off, you're just like, wow, that's a huge release lifted off of my shoulders. I got a, a letter in the mail last month from my car company. I'm like, oh, what is this? You know, and I open it up. It was the deed to my car. I had paid off my car. I think it's the first thing I ever paid off in my life. I was like, woo, I did a little dance or something like that, you know? awesome feeling that is and how small that is in comparison to the weight of sin being lifted upon our very souls so that we can be reconciled to a holy and righteous God who loves us by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That's why I love that here again he cried out with a loud voice because he wanted to make sure that no one could misunderstand that this salvation, this it, had been finished. And that means, if it is finished, that it is so important that you and I understand what he is communicating, which is that nothing can be added to it. It is perfectly completed. That's the idea here. Something that is perfect cannot be improved upon. Do you understand that? Any attempt to improve upon perfection mars the perfection. Paul said this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and then not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that is so important because there are many groups today who claim to be for Christ and about Christ. And yet, they don't really accept the finished work of the cross. It's always some human effort that is required in order to attain salvation. It's Jesus and water baptism. It's Jesus and joining this church. It's Jesus and our traditions. It's Jesus and a lot of good works. It's Jesus and completing the sacraments. And if there's an and added to anything after you say Jesus, then the problem is what Jesus really said on the, on the cross there is false. At the very least, it greatly diminishes what he did on that cross. To think of all that he suffered, of all that he endured, all of the pain and misery, all of the mocking that he went through, that I'm going to come along and add some kind of um, filthy rag brand of self-righteousness to that to try and make it better is an insult to God in the highest degree. 
but it is at the very worst calling Jesus a liar if you add an and to that, and you're calling him a liar upon the very cross by which he is dying for our sins, thus invalidating the whole thing. It can never be Jesus and anything else. Anything like that in any form is not Jesus anymore. I understand the mentality. I get some people are like, look, I just want to be super duper saved. But you're not going to be super duper saved. If it's Jesus and something else, that doesn't make anybody any more saved. It threatens to make them not saved because they don't think that Jesus is enough. Your faith has to be entirely and completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross and nothing else. If there's an and to that at all, it's no longer a finished work by Jesus upon the cross. I think really some people think that when Jesus said it is finished, they translate that somehow. No Greek scholar does. But they translate that somehow as, well, there's a good start. Now you take it from here. That is not what he said. But if you'll simply accept what it is that he did, if you'll rest in the fact that you don't get to be the hero here, and that he was, and that he did it all for you and on your behalf, there's security, there's rest, there's salvation, there's access to God, unprecedented, in all of human history, in fact, up until this point in time, to think, I mean to think, the patriarchs, if they weren't already in Abraham's bosom, they would have rolled over in their graves. I'll tell you what you mean. Listen to this here. Verse 38. Then, this is so cool, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion, who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this, and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This is one of my favorite parts in all of the Bible. I just love this. In Luke's account, it goes more than just say that the centurion said, this is the Son of God. It says that he glorified God as well. Indication would be that the centurion became a believer, which is so fitting, so appropriate for what just happened here. I mean, to think that potentially, and I don't know this to be true for sure, but to think that this could be the first post-crucifixion convert to Christ blows my mind. Why? First of all, he's a centurion, which means he oversees troops, the very troops that were used to carry out the punishment upon Jesus. The scourging, the beating of him, the mocking, forcing him to carry his cross and push him along the way, the nails driven into his hands and into his feet, all of that carried out by the Roman soldiers. The gambling for his clothes that was done at the base of the cross, all by Roman soldiers. He is overseeing this process or he is even participating in it. And yet he's now the very first potentially convert. Not just a Roman Citizen, not just a Roman centurion responsible for all of the brutality that happened to Jesus on that day, but he's a Gentile too. He's not even a Jew. He doesn't even know the Old Testament scriptures. Probably never studied them in his life. How appropriate now. Because God had just done something so mind-boggling that this, which was never before possible, had just been made 
possible as the Father, when Jesus dies at that moment in time, he reaches down from heaven just a few hundred yards away from Calvary, and the veil, which was in the very temple itself, was torn, it says, from top to bottom. And as is always the case when God does a miracle, it's never intended so that God can flex his muscles and show us all the things that he can do and that we cannot do, but it's always meant to communicate some very important priceless revelation that is true about God. Now the temple itself, not the whole compound, but the actual temple was comprised of two compartments, the holy place and the most holy place. And those two spots were separated by the veil, this very veil that we're talking about that was 60 feet tall, 30 feet long and very thick, maybe six inches to a foot thick. It took a hundred priests to be able to move this veil. And it was the very veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Veil itself suggests separation, does it not? And everything about the temple was a reminder, as we were talking about in our introduction this morning, was a reminder that our sin separates us from God. Everything about the temple was an ongoing reminder of just that. The temple grounds itself was a series, it contained a series of obstructions, of walls and barriers by which you had to have a certain access level in order to get to, so to speak. Everybody could enter into the very outer court, which was the court of the Gentiles. But that's as close as, say, someone like the centurion could ever get to the temple, which, by the way, within the temple was the Ark of the Covenant, and that was the idea that the very presence of God was there, the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God. That was the idea. The centurion could no, get no closer than the court of the Gentiles. Then beyond that, there would be another wall, the court of the women, and only Jewish men and women could enter the court of the women, but the women, Jewish women, could go no further than that by penalty of death. And beyond that wall, there was another wall, which was the court of the Israelites. And the Jewish men could go that far, but they could not go into the actual temple. Only priests could go into the temple. And at that, they could only go into the holy place. They could not go into the Holy of Holies. Only one priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And at that, only one time a year. And at that, only when a sacrifice for his, his sin was offered up ahead of time. And then he would go in to sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat of the altar. And then the rest of the year... All year long, 364 days, other than Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, nobody went into the Holy of Holies. Nobody had access to the presence of God as long as creation had been in existence up until this moment in time right here. And now because Jesus Christ goes to the cross and he dies on the cross, what God here is communicating is that the old covenant was now giving way to the new covenant, a relationship that with God before was based on doing was now based on what had been done. And the sacrifices which needed to be offered continually and time and time again in the Old Testament now paid for by Jesus Christ once and for all time. The sacrifices in the Old Testament which were merely meant to cover a person's sin now washing away all of our sins, past, present, and future. I think it's even re more remarkable to consider Jesus' uh, prediction of the destruction of the temple in light of this. Was God judging Israel by destroying the temple? You bet. 
but he was also doing something else in communicating that. You think about it, for all those years that there was a tabernacle or a temple in which they offered up sacrifices. In fact, the temple was destroyed at one point and then it was rebuilt, right? But then in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed just shortly after Jesus is off the scene and it's never been rebuilt. Why? Because there's no need to offer up sacrifices anymore. We're done with the sacrificial system. You find that just a little bit coincidental that the temple's been destroyed and they haven't been able to rebuild it since? Because God won't let them. Because there are no possible sacrifices that are acceptable to God outside of Jesus Christ. So no matter what they want to do to try to rebuild it, you cannot be an Orthodox Jew today. An Orthodox Jew, it, you can't follow your own law. You can't practice the sacrificial system. There is no temple there by which you can offer up those sacrifices. And imagine the reaction of the animal rights groups, even if they tried. So there is no way to follow Orthodox Judaism anymore, and God saw to it that that would be the case because the temple was destroyed as he predicted. And so now, that temple made of stone, instead God meets with living stones in a different place, which was the purpose of the temple to begin with. Peter wrote, you also, that is believers, as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Paul wrote, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Where does God's presence manifest himself today? In the hearts of surrendered believers in Jesus Christ, 24-7, 365, Jew, Gentile, male, female, all continents, countries, and cities all around the world every single day. As the veil was torn from top to bottom, as Jesus died, what God from heaven was communicating to this world, one single message, one single word, and it is this. It is the word access. Now, humanity has access to God that we never had before, only because of Jesus Christ. The veil was God's way of declaring open house for you and I. And anyone who would choose to put their faith and trust in him, Romans 5 puts it this way, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And one more verse and then we'll be done. Because as this veil was torn, it gave us access. What's the veil? What's the veil the picture of? Somebody got it right already. Ruined the punchline. No, just kidding. Hebrews 10, right on. Therefore, brethren, listen, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. It doesn't get any better than that, except for next week.
as we'll look at the resurrection. Lord, we thank you and praise you for this morning. What a great reminder for those of us that know you. There may be some here that are beating themselves up over their sin. And Lord, I do thank you for conviction, but when there's condemnation there, then we're forgetting about the great price that was paid, the finished and perfected work upon the cross. But Lord, I pray for those that don't know you. They've never made a commitment to you, Lord, and they're stirred up now because you're tugging at their heart. And Lord, they know who they are if they're sitting here today. They've never made a profession of faith. They've never come forward to confess to you before people. I pray for them right now. If there is anyone here and you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know that the Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. That's it. That's all that's required. Now, good works will flow from us because the Holy Spirit will come inside of you and change you. But all that's required, because he's done it all already, is for you to make that confession of faith. Everyone in this room is praying for you. We're going to close in a couple worship songs. And if that's you this morning, there will be men and women up front to pray with you to receive Jesus Christ. You'll start a whole new life. It's not about joining a church or an organization or any commitment you're making to any of us. It's just about accepting the fact that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ, who proved he was the Christ in dying on that cross for your sins. Lord, I do pray for those people. If there are any here, God, that don't know you yet in an intimate and a personal way, that want to be forgiven of their sins, Lord, give them the boldness. Give them the courage. God, we don't want them to have anything that we don't already have. We want them to have it because we already have it, and we appreciate, Lord, the salvation that we have. We are in awe of it. We thank you. We worship you and praise you, Lord. We're so grateful. We would never go back on this choice that we've made. And so, Lord, appeal to the hearts of those who don't know you now. In Jesus' name.